Hey, before we dive into the notes here, um, so many of you parents, uh, you've, you've expressed just your heart for your kids who aren't walking with Jesus right now, or, or some of you, you you're with your parents, or some of you with your friends. What a powerful story of God is always at work. Keep believing, keep praying. You know, I, I got the, the folder back of the pictures from this, this video, and Sam handed it to me, and he goes, Ron is that guy that everyone wanted to be. And so, so, so true. Um, Ron, you've had glimpses into my life since I was a high school kid. And I tell you, there are so many things. If I could go back and do differently, I would. Uh, but I want to say thank you. Thank you for welcoming me into your family and for being such a, an example in my life of so many things and for being such a great grampy to, to those kids. I respect you. I love you. I appreciate you so, so much. Well, when I was watching that story for the first time just yesterday, uh, I was struck by how many aspects of Ron's story overlap and intersect with so many of our stories, including my own. I'm seeing a whole lot of people nodding in here. There's so many of us who we had a point in our life where we began to question these things and we started to go a different direction. We thought we knew what Christianity was and we said, this is not for me and we turned our back and we started to walk away. And once you start to close the door on something, there's all kinds of research and psychology behind this, once you start to close the door on something, it is really hard for that door to start to open up again. It's very, very, very rare. Well, we've got a lot to cover today. Let's dive right in. And where I want us to start is with that thought I was just finishing with there. Have you ever tried to convince someone of truth that they were completely closed to? Have you ever had something that you, you were trying to tell them about and they were just closed off to it? Isn't that how almost every disaster movie starts? Right? You know, here, let's play a little, uh, see if you guys can guess the movie. Um, like, like this, for example. Icebergs? How's a little chunk of ice going to sink this ship? What, uh, what movie is that from? Titanic. Titanic. Good job. All right, how about this one? Dinosaurs? What could possibly go wrong if we opened up a theme park? I don't understand the concern. What's the movie? Jurassic Park and part two and part three. It's the same thing. You'd think they'd learn, right? All right, this one's a little more obscure. How about this? A volcano in LA? Anyone know this one? Volcano. That's the name of the movie. Volcano. All right, we got one more for you. This is a throwback. It's actually one of Ron's uh, films that he likes. There's no way that Chrissy Watkins was killed by a great white shark. And there's no way we're going to close down all the beaches on Amity Island because of some boating accident. The movie is? Jaws. Good job. Isn't that how most of the movies, disaster movies start? Someone knows something. They're trying to convince people of it, and no one's listening. No one's listening. And here's the thing. Those are just movies. When it's real life, Think of how many of our mistakes, our own mistakes, and the mistakes of others, how many of those started because we closed ourselves off to something. We weren't open to something. We weren't open to a possibility. If you're taking notes, there's a place to write this down too. Facts matter more when there's a lot on the line. Facts are our friends. Facts are our friends, especially when they're, the stakes are high. And there's very little that's more frustrating 
than when you see somebody that you care about and they're heading down a dangerous path and it seems right to them and you're trying to convince them this is not the path you want to be on, but they're closed off. They're closed off to it. So frustrating. And the other side of that is frustrating too. When you've experienced something that is so good that you, you, like, you want them to know about it and you're trying to explain it, but they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear. Two weeks ago, we began a new teaching series called More Jesus, Less Blank. And we introduced you to a tool that we've been tinkering with since the start of this church called the Continuums. If you've got, if you've got um, a bullet in here, those of you who are with us, I want you to, I encourage you to pull that, pull that out. Uh, this is a tool. What, what this is, it's a tool that we can use to track our growth, becoming more like Jesus, in six key areas. And one of the points that we made in week one is that so much of what is good in our world can be traced to more people becoming more like Jesus. And one of the things we did in week one of the series is we imagined a world where more people were moving this direction. Can you imagine a world where more people were becoming connected like they were part of a close-knit family and more people were serving the way that Jesus modeled and taught and more people were becoming joyful stewards of everything they were entrusted with and more people were becoming advocates of somebody who was in need and more people were contributing to communities that are all in on the next generation. All right, that was week one. In week two, what we did is we began zeroing in, as we're going to do for the rest of the series now, on just the discover continuum. And we started with people who are hovering around that not interested place. And we spoke directly to those folks. Maybe some of you are in that place that are, that are watching. If you find yourself closed off to Jesus of Nazareth and the movement that he founded, you're not alone. In fact, when Jesus himself was on this earth and was founding this movement, what did they do to him? They, they killed him, crucified him. And then they went off after all of his known associates. So this is nothing new. There's always been people who are either not interested or hostile too. Well, one of the reasons that the movement didn't die when he did is this. If you're taking notes, I might write this down. The first Christians possessed a highly materialistic faith. And I put that in quotes. This is not my own original take here. The first time I heard someone describe this, uh, the first Christians like this, is from this quote here. Christianity is the most materialistic of all religions. Now, that caught my attention, but then he explained it a little bit more. He's not talking about materialism as most of us think of it, accumulating as much as you possibly can. Jesus was not about that. He's using materialistic like you would in a courtroom, a material witness, material evidence. For the first Christians, they were grounded in reality. They fact-checked this. Why? Because the first Christians, if they were going to convert to the way of Jesus, what was on the line? Everything. Everything was on the lines. So they're not going to convert to this one who said, I have, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, unless this was really true. Because it would cost them everything and they would get basically nothing that most people treasure the most. Or at least they think they treasure the most. Well, if you're somewhere on our Discover Continuum, between that not interested and that curious place, 
I want to invite you to take a listen to last week. Pastor Jason did a fantastic job on that. I'm also going to include some resources in this week's ECC mail that are some of the ones that I were really helpful for me and my journey and, and that have been helpful for a whole lot of people. So be looking for those links. So that was last week. What we're going to dedicate this week to now is that space between I'm curious, but not yet what we call in Christ. I'm somewhere in there in that lane or in that, that, that spot. In my own experience, as someone who tried to turn my back to Christianity, I began to discover that the closer that you look, the more material evidence you find. The closer you look at our universe, and I tried, I started here, and it should be easy. We can disprove Christianity right out of the gate with, 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 with science and evidence. Boy, the more you look at our universe, the more you see the fingerprints of a creator. In fact, one of the things that I wonder sometimes is if Darwin, Charles Darwin, if he had the power of microscopes that we've got today, I wonder if his theory would have been different. Because when you look at life, there is no such thing as simple life. Can I get an amen from our biologists? There, there's no such thing as simple life. It is irreducibly complex to the point. We did a series on this uh, some years ago. To the point where diehard atheists like Richard Dawkins concede there is no plausible explanation for the origin of life. There's not even a plausible explanation for that. So you take a closer look at the universe, the more you see the fingerprints of the creator. The closer you look at the Bible, the more you discover it is distinctive in so many ways. There is no other collection of documents like it. The closer you look at the history surrounding Jesus of Nazareth, the more you discover we have highly credible accounts from the first century that have Jesus saying and doing some pretty remarkable things. And... The closer you look at the Jesus movement, the more you see that so much of what we consider good today is the result of more people becoming more like him. So let's take a look at what one of these first materialistic Christians had to say about Jesus of Nazareth. At this point in the story, this man went by the name of Paul. And I invite you to write this down. For Paul, the case for Christ rested on what? The resurrection. For him, it came down to this more than anything else. The resurrection. If you have a Bible with you, please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. If you don't have a Bible at home, um, you can go to Bible.com and download an app that has been downloaded half a billion times. That's just one app. There's something to this book. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15 verses 1 through 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Of the more than 70 uses of the word gospel in the New Testament, more than 60 come from Paul. That word gospel translates a Greek word that means good news. The gospel is the true story of a real person on a real timeline who is involved in real events. And what we do with this information, according to this witness, can save us. 
All right, let's continue reading verses three through four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All right, right out of the gate, he says, what I'm about to say here is of first importance. And then he lays it out. He says, this is first importance, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. This is what's of first importance. And he said, all this is according to the what? To the scriptures. If you've been moving along the continuum, for those of you, you've, you've moved past curious, and you're like, I'm, I'm looking into this, and you're, you're beginning to study scripture, and you're getting to the place where you're recognizing these witnesses, they pass the tests. If you put them through the same test you put others through for reliable historical ancient documents, you recognize these are reliable witnesses and these documents have not been changed over time. In fact, we can identify every place where one manuscript is off. Well, once you start doing that, you start to find yourself confronted with the fact the New Testament authors really did believe this. They really did believe in a physical, bodily resurrection. They believed it. And you might be thinking, well, those are the olden days. Everyone believed that. Do your research. Go ahead and study. Corinth is a real place. Study first century Corinth. That is not what they believed. In fact, the educated, the, the status conscious Man, if you were one of those first century Corinthians and those things were important to you, you would not want to sign on as, yeah, I believe those fairy tales about a bodily resurrection. They weren't wanting to believe that in their day as in ours. They understood. You put someone in the ground, you buried them, you put them in a tomb, they did not come out. That's what they believed then like we believe now. And Paul knew the Corinthians well. He had spent time with them. He had invested in them. And he knew they were going to get pushback for this. And, and he can anticipate them. You see it in the way he constructs this. He anticipates. They're, they're, they're thinking, wait, that cannot happen. To which he says, exactly. It can't. But it did. That's why I'm all in on this. The impossible happened. How can we not go in on Jesus of Nazareth? And he goes, we got witnesses. He goes on to say, take a look at this. We got lots of witnesses. Verses 5 through 9. Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now what happens is the further we get away from the first century, when these things were actually happening, the more we start to see more and more people saying, well, what really happened was, the ideals of Jesus were what continued on. Is that what Paul is saying? No, not at all. He's not saying the ideals. He said this really happened. As appealing as it is to our modern minds, as it was to the original audience too, check the accounts coming into the first century. They're testifying to something more materialistic. 
Check the facts, Paul says. You don't believe my words? We got witnesses. He appeared to Cephas, who you, many of you know as Peter. He appeared to 500 people at once. He appeared to his brother James, who used to be a skeptic. And he appeared to me. I used to persecute the followers of Jesus. Look how central this belief is to Paul. These are his own words in this letter. Verses 14 to 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is what? Does he say? In, in vain. And he, he says, we've even then been found to be misrepresenting God. Not everything you read in the Bible is meant to be interpreted literally. There are parables in the Bible. There is poetry in the Bible. This is not that. This is a first century person saying, I know it's not possible, but it happened. And if it didn't, we're all a bunch of liars. We're misrepresenting God. The fact that Christ died on that hill is one of the hills we die on. Can I get an amen? And think about this. If he really did rise from the dead, it changes everything. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't, then why worry about any of it? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Jesus was one of two things. If it didn't happen, he was a liar or he was a lunatic. Why? Because in the most carefully vetted accounts we have of Jesus' life, Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. He also said, the same is true of you if you're in me. Let's keep reading. Verse 17 <laughs> Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Futile. If this is just an ideal, if he hasn't actually been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is one of the distinctives of Christianity right here. One of the primary distinctives of Christianity that we believe is that something happened through the death and resurrection of Jesus that affects us in our eternity. There was something that happened that affects us today. Let's keep going. Um, verses 19 and 32. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people to be most pitied. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, like Ron said in the video, let's eat and drink. And for tomorrow we die. What's the point? If the resurrection didn't happen, Paul says, you should pity us. Because we're going through all this persecution for nothing. But if the resurrection did happen, Paul uses this beautiful language of first fruits. I encourage you to read the whole thing. He says it's like this. If, 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 that, if Jesus really did rise, it's like fall when that first red ripe apple is ready to go. It's the first of many to come. The first fruits. Uh, verse 35. Someone's going to ask, okay, well, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they, do, do they come with here? Uh, jumping ahead to verses 42 through 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It's going to be raised as a spiritual body. If there was a natural body, so there also is a spiritual body. If this testimony came from credible witnesses, 
which if you're moving along that continuum, you're going to find they're as credible as you, they come for ancient witnesses. If these words have been accurately passed down to us, which, study it, they have, then we got good news. Then our final moments of embodied existence, they don't end on the hospital bed with that body that is just fading away. Then our bodily existence doesn't end on a battlefield. It doesn't end at a crime scene. It doesn't end at the site of a tragedy. Our final years, if this is true, of embodied existence aren't dominated by dementia or disease or bodies that are slowly wearing out. If these words are true, death doesn't win. And we don't have to cling to this life like there's nothing else. The bodily resurrection of Jesus was a sign of things to come. Let's jump ahead to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, sisters, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all not sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What if he wasn't crazy? What if he wasn't lying? What if the impossible happened? If you haven't written anything else down, you might want to write this. What if the resurrection was real? What if it was real? Back when I was looking for reasons to turn my back on Christianity and head down the path that I thought I wanted to be on, my youth pastor handed me this book. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The Historical Evidences for the Christian Faith. You probably can't see us on camera, but these are, there's no pictures. These are just a lot of really, really small words on a page. It's fact after fact after fact after fact after fact after fact. It's evidence that he says demands a verdict. If that evidence demanded a verdict, why did you have to have volume two? My youth director handed me the first book. And, and... My questions kept coming and coming and coming and coming. There came a point where he just said, after being very patient for a long time, he said, Chris, when have you ever been 100% certain of anything? That's a fair question, isn't it? When are any of us 100% sure of anything? And in those moments when we've been 100% sure of something, how many times have we been wrong? Your next step, he said, it's a step of faith. Do you have enough certainty to take that step? All right, we're going to close our time together with a story, an invitation, a song, and a prayer. Here's the story, true one. One day, my father brought home an airplane, a real airplane, as in brought it home to our family farm. When you step on an airplane, you are stepping in faith. Can I get an amen? That, that is, that, right? And to this day, 
I, mean, I, I don't know how all of that works. How you get a plane to do what it does. And specific to this situation, he brings this thing in on a, on a trailer, and you got to take off for the first time. We had this little field, and at the end of this little field are really tall trees. On the other side of those trees are power lines. I'm like, Dad, how do you know that you're going to clear those trees? In my mind, I'm thinking that runway is too short. Those trees are too tall. If it had been me, that plane is never going to even attempt to go off the ground. But I was blessed. I grew up in a home where faith and facts were not at odds. When you take faith and facts and they're not at odds, man, I mean, my dad grew up on a farm. He served in three branches of the military and he was a mechanical engineer. He knew a lot more about this than me. He knew how things actually worked. Fact-based things like nature, like equipment, and physics. The facts were on his side, my father's side. All I had were ideas that were limited to my perspective. He understood things. My father understood things that I couldn't yet grasp. And those who had faith to step on that plane, that little piper cub, They had a whole new set of possibilities and perspectives that opened up to them. That's the story. Here's the invitation. We invite you to place your faith in the resurrected Christ as Savior and Lord. Crazy as that sounds, we're inviting you to put your faith in a resurrected Christ. How many of you know the Bible left a lot of stuff out? It's not a trick question. Book of John says, if we were to include everything about Jesus, there wouldn't be enough space on the planet to include all those books. We can keep writing volume three, volume four, volume five. There comes a point, if you're on this journey, where your next step is a step of faith. And if it's sincere, it opens up a whole new world of seeing things in the scriptures that you never saw before, of experiencing the kinds of things you see in the Bible beginning to happen in your own life, of learning how to pray as Jesus prayed and walking as he walked, recognizing this is so huge, recognizing our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So many of you, you're you're, you're trying to battle something. It's spiritual. No wonder you, you can't battle it on your own of experiencing an inner change that others begin to see. And more and more and more. Are there challenges if you're in Christ? Absolutely. But guess what? Now you don't walk alone in the way you did before. On our continuum, the next milestone, it's in Christ. The in Christ experience. And similar to the way that stepping on a plane unlocks all kinds of new perspective and possibilities if you continue on that journey in Christ. It is a gateway too. Can I get an amen? In Christ is a gateway to so much more. Oh, all right, I shared the story. I gave the invitation. Before we pray, I want to invite you to hear this song. If you've been living in this space between curious 
but not yet in Christ. One of the things that so many of us have experienced is, and this seems ironic, counterintuitive, the closer you get to in Christ, often the more you feel like, I can't take that step. Who am I to take that step? It's what Peter experienced when he said, get away from me, Jesus. As he began to recognize Jesus as more than a teacher, I'm, I'm a sinful man. This song, if you've ever experienced that, it's for you.